we take the headphones off? I don't know. I like... Because I'm... Well, actually, no. I can't even hear what's coming out of here. I'm worried if it, like, the computer overloads and it starts skipping that I won't hear it. Right. And if that happens, like, 15 minutes in, you know. But, okay. Oh, Let, let's throw it. caution to the wind. The headphones are off. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Pop Doctrine. My name is Tom Cockrum. Uh, I'll be your host now and forever. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by some guests. So this is the first episode I'm recording with other people. So bear with us. <laughs> I think we're going to have a bit of a freewheeling discussion. We have um, Jeremy of local Perth band Segway. How you doing, Jeremy? I am good, thank you. How Very are nice. you? Yeah. You good? Good. Uh, and <laughs> we also have Laurent of another local Perth band called Catwalk. How you doing, my friend? Very well. You hard all listening. Very good. And collectively, Jeremy and Laurent are also in another band called Didion's Bible, amongst a few others. They're, they're boys with their fingers in many a pie uh, in the local scene. So we love to see it. And, I, and we've also all lived together in the past as well. So I guess that, can, that contributes to our spiritual bond. That's right. I thought we'd have some musicians on today to have a chat about um, a musical subject, the band Arcade Fire. So we'll, we'll get into, I guess, the reasons for focusing on them in a bit more detail soon. But I guess straight off the bat, the main reason I want to look at Arcade Fire is not so much that they are, I think they're a particularly like uh, prophetic or uh, like mind-blowingly astute commentators on like social conditions and popular culture but um i do think they've released a lot of good stuff that has coincided with some pretty big events in america and i personally am a big fan of their music but i also don't want to uh make it seem like that they have the last word on the hmm. american dream <laughs> um, so yes Wasn't we're gonna have a chat about that sorry uh, <laughs> didn't bruce springsteen have the last word on the american dream i think uh yeah that's already been <laughs> yeah no, no yeah. hagiography <laughs> So yes, we're, we're going to be looking at them from that perspective and kind of seeing how maybe their music distills a certain zeitgeist and maybe, I mean, ultimately serves as kind of a mirror or a window into a certain kind of uh, modern America and some of the different uh, mindsets and ideologies that occupy that space. So I guess we'll start by just talking about our personal relationships with the band. So maybe... Laurent, do you want to start us off? Sure, sure. I remember listening to Arcade Fire for the first time, maybe 2010, 2011, starting to get into indie rock music. And they're kind of one of the first names that pop out as this kind of big band, sort of epic indie rock ballads with some nice Baroque maybe instrumentation as well. I think Funeral was the first one I listened to. Then Suburbs was out around... 2011 or so, if I'm not incorrect. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Uh, or am I wrong? Jeremy, I say 2010 or 2012. Yeah, 2010. 2010. 2010. Okay. August 2010. Yeah, so it, look, the suburbs was hot off the presses around <laughs> then. People were listening to it um, in their cars with their windows <laughs> down. You wouldn't be able to walk pa past um, the city without someone slamming um, some of those tracks. And I wouldn't. I, I feel like I, I was always keeping up to date what they were doing, interesting stuff, but I never was like... Um, I was never like a stan. I yeah, always okay. kept I always kept my my ear to the ground, and followed what they were doing. But um, yeah, they're hard to ignore. They're one of those one of those big bands that you just gotta just gotta vibe along to. A lot to. of noise. Well, yeah. I don't know a whole whole lot of noise going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, whole lot of stuff. And Jeremy, 
So in 2010, when The Suburbs came out, I randomly bought a copy of it for no reason. I'd never heard their music, but I just like, it was there in uh in jb hi-fi i yeah. bought it on compact disc you were peer pressured into <laughs> i wasn't the suburbs. even it was just like a it was just a moment um okay. yeah, it was gonna but, get beaten up otherwise yeah yeah um I, I definitely win butler was threatening to beat me up when by his record um anyway i bought it you know loaded it onto my computer put it on my ipod <laughs> and <laughs> the old <Whoa>. ways <laughs> and i remember walking around at night listening to it in headphones and sort of having a sense of like there being something like distilled in it that was more than just like a you know like an indie band singing about their feelings like it kind of it definitely felt like they were trying to channel like something external yeah but there's definitely a sense of that i think and that was like my first impression of of them and i think it's still a thing that kind of defines them for me yeah no i think definitely that the a lot of their songs kind of come from a first person perspective but i think the win butler who i think is like the main lyricist for the band if not the sole lyricist apart from some little bits and bobs from regine especially with like on their earlier stuff with haiti um and I, but i he occupies a lot of different archetypal or stereotypical american characters particularly of a more working class and religious bent really and i think he uses that both to criticize certain aspects of religion and also maybe criticize certain aspects of the state that maybe lead to kind of uh, an oppression of certain socioeconomic groups um I, I guess my intro, to, I didn't really like Arcade Fire when I first heard them. I was really into like the Strokes and Arctic Monkeys and I, I thought they were a bit beige. <laughs> then I really did get into them when I was a bit older. If, if anything, I was just too immature. I think The Suburbs was the first album I got into and then, yeah, like Funeral. Neon Bible I probably got into the latest because I think Reflector came out and then I spent a lot of time listening to that. Really enjoyed that. And I mean, ultimately, Arcade Fire are probably one of the most influential bands on my own music project, like the big band sound. I really liked how all of their shows seemed like a big party. It was very like, it felt non-pretentious. It felt like they were giving it their all. And I remember reading, I think, or, or listening to one of Wynn's interviews, they said with Funeral that they... um their main goal was for like no one in the bar to be talking over them. They they wanted to grab people's attention and as a result kind of destroyed their vocal cords in the process. <laughs> and yeah, and like seeing them at big day, the last big day out a few years ago. Rest in peace. Yeah, man. Mm. That was, I mean, I cried when they, when they, <laughs> and yeah. shamefully, but when they did um, Here Comes the Nighttime and there was this big explosion of confetti, it was just. Oh, I, I cried when Tony Hawk did the half pipe <laughs> at big day out. <laughs> So anyway, yes, that was, I guess, my entry point. And um, I, I guess like Jeremy said, there's always a sense with their music that um, it was maybe not as vain or as uh, self-centered as, uh, which was a very popular thing for music to be in that time period. Like you look at kind of, like I said, Arctic Monkeys and the Strokes, there's kind of this uh, nonchalance, this thought I'm looking for. Like uh, a breeziness or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of very, like, attitude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And yeah. Arcade Fire didn't really seem to have that. It was very sincere and kind of almost not cool, but cool as a result because it wasn't trying too hard. I think it's aged better, potentially. Yeah. I, I see, I don't know about that. Hey, I feel like the suburbs has, but I was sort of listening to the funeral 
in I preparation have, I have for the this. opposite opinion. Yeah. The opposite <laughs> opinion. Yeah. Uh, I, to f- I think the sub... Well, sorry, Jeremy, you I was explain like, yourself. Listening to Funeral earlier... Um, it's like I don't know. I kind of felt like funeral kind of was almost too uh, like straight for the for the, for the emotional jugular, and yeah. it might not it might not go down too well, like now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think inside. Yeah, I agree, and I think that was both uh, an artistic choice to get as much attention as possible in the live setting, and also just sounded like they didn't have a lot of money to start with, so all yeah. the arrangements were kind of uh, favored heavy dynamics over uh like compositional uh nuance mm, yeah <laughs> but yeah I, I i don't know i think i guess the suburbs the technical elements of it are probably a bit more solid although yeah. I, I must confess i still prefer uh, father john misty's cover of the suburbs and his his ability to inject some testosterone into these sexless songs <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Whoa. a take uh, yeah a no, take. i think is uh, i'm not sure how many buttons are undone but it was a uh, it was a sight to behold um on his shirt so <laughs> with all that in mind uh, i think la- i've got a lot of notes i've got too many notes um, that's good but i think we'll we'll move through some of their music and i guess we're going to have a look at some secondary resources to maybe um, reveal a bit more about what some of these lyrics could be saying. And I mean, a lot of this, we, we don't know if it's the intent of the artist. And I think a lot of the time it doesn't really matter because whether it's intentional or not, we can kind of read certain tells, certain themes into the right. Um, yeah, they don't have into, a choice. Yeah, we they don't will, have a choice. We will theorize <laughs> them whether they like it or not. And I guess the two... The two lenses I've kind of chosen to maybe focus our attention a bit more are songs that kind of deal with a nostalgia for um, childhood whilst also maybe either directly or indirectly reckoning with uh, the end of the American dream or kind of this perceived American dream. And around the time I was preparing for this episode, I watched um, Chomsky's documentary, Requiem for the American Dream, where he kind of talked about how there was a time kind of in like New Deal America where you could be a working class person and reasonably expect to like buy a house and be able to send your kids to school and that that is just not quite the case anymore. And I think Arcade Fire kind of reckon with that change and from different perspectives, including a a working class one. And the other lens I want to look at is how they engage with, um, I guess, technology, social media, the media in quite a critical way. So kind of expressing maybe a degree of disdain towards how these things uh, mediate our relationships with each other, with our communities, with politics, and I guess with truth, with kind of the the acceptable bounds of the boundaries of the discourse. So, yeah, um, we're going to try and kind of categorize songs into those two, <laughs> into those two spheres. Jeremy (laughs) and um, I think that's going to help us maybe skip through some of the maybe less politically potent material so (laughs) we've we've had a few mishaps with this uh, recording process but all we can say is that we've done this take a few times now so um, surely surely we'll know what we're saying we're going to start with uh, with Funeral, their debut album, 2004. We've talked a bit about this on and off mic, about how um, it's... 
I mean, when I first listened to this album, it was a very, I felt nostalgic for a youth that I had not experienced. And I, I think that youth is, that nostalgia is presented in quite a non-critical way. Um, but I think Laurent, you had something. Yeah, I think, I feel like they've kind of been the same band throughout. I don't think they've changed too much. I think they've changed what they've sung about, but I think they still have the same outlook, which we might get to once we go to something like Reflector or something. Yeah, and, and what, how would you uh, summarize that outlook? Um, it's a definitely a very nostalgic one. And I think nostalgia can be, can be good. I think um, Funeral, you mentioned either off, off air or something like that, of the kind of almost ut- utopian or idyllic kind of past, um, maybe apart from like some tracks like Haiti or something. But yeah, I think, I think the nostalgia factor is strong. And the sort of, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about the last track, like where Regine is thinking about her like in her car ride. Yeah, in the backseat. Like, in the backseat, yeah. everything's chill, you know. You know, the Uber's here, got the water, got the mints in the tray. Yeah. Like, it's a good, it's a good time. They're having good times there. I think this was pre-Uber, but yes. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I, yeah. Speaking from experience. It's, you know, I, um, yeah, I, it kind of, it makes me think of either being like uh, hungover and passed out in the back of someone else's car who's driving or just being a kid in the back of my parents' car driving somewhere on holiday and either way feeling very uh, carefree and... Uh, just uh i don't know it it reminds me of being on being on a plane i love being on planes because i know if something does go wrong it's not my fault and there's nothing (laughs) i can do about it (laughs) there's just there's no blood on my hands if i if i die in a plane when arcade uh, fires first record is playing if something goes wrong it's not yeah it's not your fault so it's your and so yeah i think this very like innocent nostalgic uh youthful exuberances uh exemplified by the opening track neighborhood one tunnels it's probably my favorite arcade fire song just that i think i listened to it when i was first starting to learn guitar and i just loved the the riff at the start because it was so simple and i could play it and it was just uh had this um opulence and majesty to it but like some of the lyrics in that you changed all the lead sleeping in my head to gold you know, pretty romantic, very uh, symbolic, metaphorical, not overly specific, but uh, definitely hits you in the hits you in the feels when you're a little pubescent teenager, <laughs> which I which most we all certainly are. wasn't. Yeah, continue, <laughs> continue to be to some degree, um, well into my twenties. Yeah. So, I think the closest they really get to any like political sentiments on this album, and I I do think Haiti definitely does. Although I just I don't feel particularly equipped yet to engage with um, the history of that. But I, I think in later episodes, especially when we look at the wider American occupation of other countries and territories in future episodes, we can deal with that a bit. But um, in Neighborhood 3, we've got um, this line, the power's out in the heart of man, take it from your heart, put it in your hand. We've got kind of this vague call to arms, this call for action over maybe um, discussion and rumination. And then in Wake Up, you know, I guess Wake Up is the the cry of the conspiracy theorist since time in memoriam. And we've kind of got this, well, encouragement. What's the stronger word for encouragement? Forcing. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) This this rallying cry to kind of go from this state of unawareness of being asleep to the the realities of, I guess, the, the dominant social order or the the material conditions and waking up and having 
a uh, more, uh, I guess, informed awareness. Never a, really a total awareness, but at least a um, something more engaged with the material circumstances. And I guess this reminded me a little bit of... Um, Zizek's bit in um, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology where he looks at the John Carpenter film They Live, which I think we'll have a look at a little bit more in um, in a future episode. But essentially he focuses on this scene where um, our main character um, who's existing in this, he's, I think he's a homeless guy who um, is moved into this kind of commune of other displaced people and in this commune in kind of the organizational center, which I think is a church, he finds these glasses. And when he puts the glasses on, he begins to see things around him for what they truly are. And so, for example, he um, he looks at a billboard for, um, what is it? I think it's for a computer or something. And when he puts the glasses on, all the billboard says is obey. And he looks at all of these newspapers and when he puts the glasses on, it says, obey, sleep, pay your taxes, don't rebel, uh, follow the law. And he looks at this billboard for a holiday and it says, marry and procreate. It's kind of enforcing these very uh, conventional uh, societal norms through these seemingly benign signifiers. But um, the idea being that we're asleep to um, the real message they're communicating. And I think, I guess, Laurent, is there anything Mm. we can maybe add on ideology? I guess the thing I would add there is that for Zizek, ideology is reality without contradiction or without this kind of interrupting traumatic element. Like you're living in a smooth um, landscape where everything is just kind of simple and easy. And I guess a way out of ideology would be to think of reality with contradiction so how things can be both things at once essentially okay and so we kind of think of ideology as this means of making life livable without having to constantly be grappling with these Mm. uh, inconsistencies yeah yeah i think i think it's pretty hard to avoid ideology but i think for the things that matter you know there's there's time to do so yeah okay cool all right so i mean that's funeral pretty uh benign as an album, uh, enjoyable, listenable, fun. Let's move on to Neon Bible. I think this gets a little bit more into some of the themes we want to focus on. And starting with the opening track, Black Mirror, which is, um, I think was the inspiration for the, is it a BBC show, Black Mirror? Uh, Netflix show? It's a Netflix thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. okay. The That show, um, the anthology series. And I don't know, what do we think about Black Mirror? <laughs> the, the TV show or the yeah, album? The TV show. I actually haven't seen it, hey. It's a bit bloody paranoid, isn't it? <laughs> is it the yeah. one with the the, it's the pig? It's a bit hit and miss sometimes. <laughs> I like um, the pig one. The, the, is oh the, is the pig one? The pig one traumat the, the first episode. I was a little kid and I was just like, I felt sick. And my parents wanted to watch it, but I'd already seen it and I had to go into another room because I didn't want to be around it. Aww. 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 <laughs> um, so anyway black mirror that uh, wasn't me doing a pig noise by the way that was like a, a genuine <laughs> um the animal noise section will be later on i'll ask yeah. you to refrain for now um so Black Mirror, in, the, in this song in particular, it's referring to any given screen. So, you know, the, the phone screen, the computer screen, the TV screen. 
And um, I think now we'll, we'll have a look at some readings. Jeremy very kindly lent me um, Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, I tried to get into it very quickly to try and get some notes for this episode. And I think the book is great, but it, it just kind of flew a bit over my head in my frantic looking for things that were relevant for this. But I did find an article she wrote in kind of, I guess, to promote the book and also just to, you know, give a bit of an insight into what she's discussing. And I, I think we can glean a lot from this. She talks about this concept of technology as a one-way mirror. So people on the other side, or and by people, I guess we mean those who are consuming the data and using it to sell us things um, and maybe some other more sinister things as well, but that we on the other side of the screen don't really get to know what's happening, how the sausage is made. Uh, we don't get to look in the factory. Um, we only get the hot dog. We only get the hot dog, the, the, the sumptuous sausage, right? hot dog that gives yeah. us heart disease. Um, Yeehaw. So I just want to read a few little bits from this and I guess we can we can speak on it. So just some context here. She She's talking about how digital... Um, and by that, I think she means online um, computational world was promised to us as fast and efficient and w kind of foisted upon us as a logical, um, a logical shift, I guess, in mm. the, the relationship between humans and technology. So she says, it's not surprising that so many of us rush to follow the bustling white rabbit down his tunnel into a promised digital wonder wonderland where, like Alice, we fell Pray to delusion. In Wonderland, we celebrated the new digital services as free, but now we see that the surveillance capitalists behind those services regard us as the free commodity. We thought that we searched Google, but now we understand that Google searches us. We assumed that we use social media to connect, but we learned that connection is how social media uses us. We barely questioned why our new TV or mattress had a privacy policy, but we've begun to understand that privacy policies are actually surveillance policies. And um, just having a bit more of a look, she talks about how um, our relationship to technology and specifically the internet has led to this new centrality of epistemic inequality. So basically, um, this world where knowledge is mediated, where who you are determines what kind of knowledge you have access to and what kind of understanding you can develop. And she says um, of this relationship, the challenges of epistemic justice and epistemic rights in the new era are summarized in three essential questions about knowledge, authority and power. Who knows? Who decides who knows? And who decides who decides who knows? So these kind of interrelated kind of power relationships uh, that ultimately serve as filters, I guess, that determine what information us as, I guess, ordinary citizens are allowed to access. So, what do we think about this? Throw <laughs> <laughs> you in the deep end. Yeah, they really be out there looking at us. So, I think that, um, yeah, I think you get this impression of Light and Arcade Fire of um, technology being this, this vice, um, this negative thing, and how this is sort of uh, maybe not necessarily... Like, I think there's a sort of paradox with the title surveillance capitalism. You can just call that capitalism. <laughs> yes, or at least nowadays anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this is, if, if surveillance is, is not a new term, then maybe just like the specific intertwinement with technology. Mm. 
Yeah, well, I, I think the main, like you say, yeah, like it's, I mean, capitalism wearing a different t-shirt or a different mm. jacket is still is still capitalism. <laughs> um, I, I guess one of the main differences here that I don't, I'm sure uh, Shoshana does go into this in the book. I, I just have not got my head around it yet. <laughs> but I do know that um, from uh, astutely listening to some of the earlier Truanon episodes, they talk about, I guess, the speculative nature of the data that is gleaned from um, this surveillance and how we're kind of promised that Allowing access to that data is going to fuel these like uh, utopian projects or, well, in my, to my mind, dystopian, but yeah, like, you know, um, artificial intelligence and being able to use this data to make very complex predictions about human nature. But I mean, so far, it does seem that to the, the extent to which this is possible still very well, still very much is determined by um, human interaction with that data. The data is by no means independent or self-sufficient yet. It still requires that human uh, mediation. And I mean, I think some of the more egregious examples come to like preventative policing measures where like if, you, if you're putting racism into an algorithm, you're going to get racism spat out the other side. And mm. But you, for now you've got a license to call it science. And mm. Um, so I guess we can see the dangers of that and also just there's so much money in it and it's essentially a speculative asset which has not matured yet and we don't know if it ever will mature if it will produce the return that's being promised so I guess there's a few different perspectives we can yeah. take so moving on I guess we've got the title of the album itself Neon Bible referring to television and how um, the TV has kind of taken over the role of moral teaching, of educating us, socializing us. And by us, I guess I mean younger people and it could be one of their prime ways of learning if they don't have access to a particularly strong education or if parents are working a lot. And I mean, this fact is not viewed positively in the context of the album and the title song. I think they say not much chance for survival if the Neon Bible is true. And I mean... I kind of think of some of the stuff that Matt Taibbi's written on the media and how um, we have a kind of a very adversarial system where we have kind of liberal and conservative platforms battling out with each other without any real interest in kind of achieving some kind of progress um, or material change. It's kind of all posturing and performative, basically playing the hits for the audience. Uh, like if you if you watch Fox and you hate CNN, then there's going to be plenty of content on there that's going to uh, make you feel better about that and vice versa. And there's no real kind of, a, I guess, dialectical... Uh, <laughs> Fusion. Yeah, there's, there's no coming together and kumbayaing. Uh, and trying to reach some kind of uh, consensus, which I mean is uh, sad and uh, worrying. Uh, I think in Taibi's book, he talks about how this has transitioned, how this is a recent development and how Fox News was one of the first kind of media arsenals to uh, start siloing viewers, to not be trying to to not try and appeal to everyone, but to try and appeal to specific demographics. And in turn, um, this happened both on the left and the right, and it kind of led to any idea of an established set of truths or facts kind of falling away. The side, either side would arbitrarily disagree with the other side on matters of fact as a matter of principle. Um what else have we got here? I think Black Wave, the the structure of this song, it kind of 
Regine has this very upbeat, sort of um, dissonant, but still very dancey um, vocal delivery. And then um, I guess the chorus uh, delivered by Wynn transitions from this like doo-wop Motown vibe to a much more um, somber, melancholic ballad delivery where he says, stop now before it's too late. Been eating in the ghetto on a hundred dollar plate. Nothing lasts forever. That's the way it's got to be. There's a great black wave in the middle of the sea for me. So uh, some of the commentary I read on this was I uh, pointed out how it was a bit heavy handed and a bit ham fisted <laughs> eating in the ghetto from from the man himself. But um, <clears throat> I guess this idea of I kind of read this as the decaying and middle class you kind of got this this social order that's changing and that uh, would be best adapted to as opposed to kind of living in denial of it. Yeah, I guess it's a kind of um, a fatalism almost. Nothing lasts forever. That's the way it's... It's this pushback against the maybe nostalgic core which founded their, um, their songwriting process, this sort of traumatic um, incursion, if you like. It, it in some ways appears as a interruption, but once interruptions become so um, sort of ossified into everyday life, then are they really interruptions anymore? Well, I guess I think... Um, I do want to come back to another song on here but i think this song windowsill is probably one of the most politically potent arcade fire songs and i'm just gonna put us yeah so i think i'll read through this verse and you guys can have a look as well and then the chorus as well so i don't want to give them my name and address i don't want to see what happens next i don't want to live in my father's house no more i don't want to live with my father's debt you can't forgive what you can't forget i don't want to live in my father's house no more I don't want to fight in the holy war. I don't want the salesman knocking at my door. I don't want to live in America no more. Because the tide is high and it's rising still and I don't want to see it at my windowsill. So uh, I think this rising up to the windowsill, Mm. this kind of represents the same kind of incursion to me. Like you've got the safe environment of this like middle class family home, which I guess we can kind of garner because the the speaker is saying that they're they're living in their father's home, they they have a home, but maybe they they don't see themselves having their own home in the future. That kind of dream has faded away, and now they're just left with the debt. And this kind of uh, this change is at their windowsill. They can see it mm. kind of slowly about to overflow into their personal uh private experience Mm. i kind of feel like there might also be like a sense of wanting to be able to disavow like all of the bad things of like real grown-up life like coming coming, Mm. coming back to that kind of nostalgia thing um like if you see the windowsill not as like just a windowsill but as like the frame through which you know you experience you experience yeah the outside world Mm. you kind of want your windowsill to stay untainted by all those Mm. bad things so they're still there it's almost like a um you just don't don't you wish you you could unsee it or you wish you could um you know what i mean Mm. no exactly i i think it's very uh it's quite a a very understandable and empathetic but also quite kind of juvenile and like uh Mm. kind of retreating back into this uh yeah this safe space and that's i guess kind of it comes back to the nostalgia thing with them of kind of like a longing for a simpler time or a time when you weren't aware of all of these kind of all of these things yeah Um, and this like downwardly mobile existence of kind of being aware that your life could uh easily 
not be as good as your parents. Well, mm. yeah, like on you know funeral, what was the the, the line? You know, I, I'll build a tunnel from my window to yours. You know, on funeral, the window was like to your neighbor's house to to kind of you know some kind of weird childhood romance thing mm. and then on this album the windowsill is like the tide and it's yeah it's like the only barrier between you and uh the perils of the outside world mm. and there's definitely like uh there's no acknowledgement of any like complicity in these things um mm. and i mean it, i don't think we need to necessarily expect there to be but it does very much have a kind of like oh man like <laughs> this really sucks and like why is this happening to me yeah i, I don't think that Saying you don't want to live in America anymore means that America doesn't stop being a imperialist comp- country. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. You know the one of the title one of the one of the words lyrics in the song. You know, tide is high, tide is high, but I'm holding on. I'm gonna be your number <laughs> I was one. Wondering if that's what you were calling. I don't know if you can uh, still say that in the song. I guess they're yeah. they're riffing off that a little bit. Yeah. Um, this last bit of the song that we're looking at on your screen right now, yeah. Tom. Uh, why is the night so still? Why did I take the pill? Because I don't want to see it at my windowsill. <laughs> um, um, did we end up keeping in the bit about ideology earlier? Cause yeah, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, we did. Um, you know, Take the third pill. <laughs> <laughs> Blue pill or red pill. Or if you want to get full-on Epstein brain, the black pill. Oh, shit. Oh, well, I thought they had different colored pills in Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think they just get pills in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's time for us to pill Jeremy. Um, <laughs> we're green pilling him. So, la, la, la. Yeah. Let's have a look at Antichrist television blues in brackets. And I think this is one of the most kind of narrative-driven Arcade Fire songs. Um, Win Butler adopts a first-person perspective of this character, Joe Simpson, who's a real-life person. He's the father of pop stars Jessica Simpson and Ashley Simpson. And in adopting this kind of persona, he... Um, He's this like blue collar, working class, very religious, archetypal American character who ostensibly just wants their children to have a better life than they have and who is very motivated and invested in pushing them to be able to do this and to have opportunities. But as the song progresses, it kind of seems to become clear that there's a bit more to it than this and that maybe that the father is projecting their own sense of injustice and thinking that they deserve better onto their child and wanting to kind of live vicariously through them. And uh, in doing so, we kind of come across some themes of exploitation, of uh, children kind of being used as avatars for parents who maybe have passed their prime to keep living out their dreams. So I'll just, we'll just read some passages. The first verse, I don't want to work in a building downtown. No, I don't want to work in a building downtown. I don't know what I'm going to do because the planes keep crashing always two by two. I don't want to work in a building downtown. No, I don't want to see when the planes hit the ground. So we've got this very overt reference to 9-11. And I guess we could kind of see this as like a dividing point in time between two different Americas. Any thoughts on that? What do you think those... How could we define mm. those two Americas? I was just thinking about what we were talking about earlier in terms of the kind of traumatic incursion point, like mm. 9-11 being this sort of point where there's this sort of instance of, of sacrifice or national national shame and sacrifice over this this incident. And in a way to, to rationalize um, it through something rather than simply America foreign policy 
sort of finding new individ- individuals to inscribe this sort of blame on yeah kind of thing and uh him obviously finding using his using his daughter as a kind of mechanism to 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 blame yes. to blame this stuff on yeah, I guess we have like this generational divide and uh, with what we were talking about with ideology before, 9-11 seemed to be like a, a contradiction or a mm. traumatic event that couldn't be smoothed over and did kind of uh, mm. lead to a reimagining of America. Yeah, well, it had to, for America to be able to do that, they would have had to accept a, a lifetime of inflicting pain. And yes. It was easier to, to yeah, smooth over the contradiction and to... Uh, it's further double down on sort of racists, racism, and yeah, like xenophobia, xenophobia, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving on, we're kind of introduced to the religious quality of this figure, and to be clear, I think in this whole song, he's basically talking to God. Um, that's the mm. the idea. So he says, "You know that I'm a God fearing man, but I just got to know if it's part of your plan to see my daughter there by your right hand. I know that you'll do what is right, Lord, for they are the lanterns and you are the light." So I mean, that sounds pretty. You know, I mean, uh, maybe a bit more pious than. Than, than we might be, but ultimately a respectable or... It's a sweet sentiment. Yeah, sweet sentiment. Sweet yes. Sentiment. Okay. But things start to change. So we've got, little girl, you're old enough to understand that you'll always be a stranger in a strange, strange land. The men are going to come while you're fast asleep, so you better just stay close and hold on to me. If my little mockingbird don't sing, then daddy won't buy her no diamond ring. So, um... Hey. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> so you've got this, like, deployment of... Uh, so the song called Mockingbird. I just remember the Eminem version. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, gonna I think buy so. you a mockingbird. That was on um. Wow, what was that compilation called? Like Smash Smash Hits. Oh, <laughs> uh, so fresh. So, so fresh. fresh. Yeah. Now, just now. No, it was so fresh. Yeah. Maybe uh, it was on the Hot Wheels soundtrack. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, and no, I definitely remember it from So Fresh, like two thousand and six, seven, eight. I think earlier, but yeah. Wow. I was gonna say two for some reason, but. That doesn't seem right. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> before before that, where were we? Where were we yeah. So uh, that was, was that a uh, an incursion, a traumatic incursion? Uh, you definitely incursed uh, what we were doing. Yeah, we'll just finish this off. So you're such a sensitive child. Oh, you're such a sensitive child. I know. I know you're tired, but it's all right. I just need you to sing for me tonight. You're gonna have your day in the sun. You know, God loves the sensitive ones. Oh, my little mockingbird sing, I need you to get up on that stage for me, honey, and show the men it's not about the money. Want to hold up a mirror to the world so they can see themselves inside my little girl. So, we've kind of got this (laughs) this very Epsteinian arc developing. Um, It's kind of become very clear that uh, this desire for his his little girl to achieve success is not one of altruism, but maybe one of uh, selfishness and desire for some kind of retribution of feeling hard done by and wanting to level the playing field to some degree. I think it's also a song that reveals a bit more of Wynn Butler's feelings towards religion in America. I think he actually studied theology at university and I think a lot of his vocal delivery in many of his songs has a kind of religious fervor to it. But um, in this one, he seems very much to be critiquing like the 
uh, American evangelical movement, which, I mean, from the title of the song, Antichrist Television Blues, we can probably see as uh, some kind of reference to the the Falwell dynasty uh, with Jerry Falwell and now his fail son, Jerry Falwell Jr., which I think has been uh, dramatized in the um, HBO series Righteous Gemstones, whereby I guess we see that these religious institutions are essentially as corporate as any other business and if not more so and uh, sort of deploy uh, religious sentiments quite cynically and uh, it seems like that's what now our narrator is doing here as well he's kind of using his piety to justify his just overt exploitation yeah there's a sense of like just as one would put everything on red in terms of uh for for there to be this kind of grand awakening or grand savior, he's he's sort of sublating that into his his daughter, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's got a case of the giggles. Been bloody all night. <laughs> Actually, I think this this probably is a good point to stop this one. I think we will come back for part two to have a look at the last three Arcade Fire albums, and yeah, in the meantime. Have a great week, uh, much love, and we'll see you on the flip side. To close out, we're going to have a song from Jeremy's band, Segway, called I Get It.